Hello, I'm Rebecca Butterworth and I'm an associate in the planning team at Herbert Smith Freehills. Today I'm hosting the third episode in our Back to Basics Development Consent Regime podcast series. In the first and second episodes, we covered the pre-application stage and the application preparation and submission stages. I have my colleague Julia McCune here with me today who will be speaking on today's episode. Julia joined Herbert Smith Freehills as an associate in the planning team in 2018 and has been working closely on the DCO application for the Sizewell C new nuclear power station project ever since. Julia, what will today's episode cover? Hi Rebecca, today we're talking about the pre-examination stage of the DCO regime. This stage, as the name suggests, is the period of time between the DCO application being accepted by the planning inspectorate and the examination of the application beginning. Great. Please tell us a bit more about the pre-examination stage. Well, in that last episode, Rebecca, you talked about the 28 days which the planning inspector has to determine whether or not to accept the application on behalf of the Secretary of State. Oh, by the way, do you know any applications that have not been accepted for examination by the Secretary of State? Well, Although the overwhelming majority of applications do make it safely through the acceptance stage, it does occasionally happen that the planning inspectorate refuses to accept an application due to inadequate consultation or because the application is considered to be unsatisfactory. The most recent example was when the planning inspectorate decided not to accept the DCO application for the Thurrock Flexible Generation Plant in March of this year due to technical flaws in the application including that the applicant had failed to apply up-to-date sea level rise allowances in the flood risk assessment. It was, however, accepted at the second attempt in June. Given all of the work involved in preparing an application, which we touched on in the last episode, nobody wants to stumble at this hurdle. No, of course not. Well, assuming the planning inspectorate does accept the application, it is now in the pre-examination stage. As I mentioned before, this is the stage before the formal examination starts, which we'll cover in the next episode. At this stage, there is a statutory requirement for the applicant to publicise the acceptance of the application in local and national newspapers, site notices and notices sent directly to statutory consultees. This is an important part of the process to ensure that members of the public and statutory consultees are aware of the application's acceptance and informed about their rights to register as interested parties, which will enable them to participate in the examination if they so wish. Applicants must make sure that the public have the opportunity to inspect the application free of charge in places available to the public, including in the vicinity of the proposed development. This is usually in public places such as public libraries and the offices of local councils. So what if something unexpected happens, which means people are not able to access the public spaces where a copy of the application is made available for public inspection? A global pandemic, which causes the public to stay at home and avoid public places, for example? <laughs> yes, I don't think anyone anticipated anything like COVID-19 and the challenges that it would present for all stages of the development consent process from inspecting consultation and application documents at physical locations, as required by statute, to attending and participating in hearings during the examination. Thankfully, regulations were introduced in July this year, which temporarily amend certain requirements placed on promoters of nationally significant infrastructure projects. 
The modifications relevant to the pre-examination stage include the temporary removal of the requirement to make the application available for inspection at places including at least one address in the vicinity of the proposed development during the period from the 22nd of July 2020 to the 31st of December 2020, when it may be difficult to do so due to the effects of COVID-19. Of course, following acceptance, the application documents are always available to freely download from the Planning Inspectorate's website. And this is normally the most effective way to enable people to view the application, provided they have access to the internet. Once lockdown measures ease, applicants may be able to find other ways to ensure the public are aware of the application and have access to view it. We have seen applicants adopt appointment-based viewing sessions, set up mobile libraries in the vicinity of the proposed development, and implement laptop loan systems to allow people to access and view the documents online. Applicants regularly offer to send consultees a copy of the application on a USB stick upon request or a hard copy of their application documents for a fee which is set to cover the costs of printing and postage. And are there any formal procedures involved in confirming that the notification procedures have been satisfied? Yes, the application must certify compliance with the notification requirements in respect of statutory consultees and the general public and confirm that specified consultation bodies have been sent the required information. There are standard forms for the certificates that must be used, which are set out in the regulations. One important aspect of the notices is that they must set a deadline by which people can submit relevant representations to the planning inspectorate, setting out their views on the application. And how much time do people have to make these representations? Well, the deadline to submit relevant representations must be at least 28 days, beginning with the day after the day on which the person receives the notice or when the notice is last published in the newspapers. However, there is no maximum period for the submissions of representations, so more time can be allocated to this period if required. Many applicants choose to extend the deadline beyond the 28 days, particularly if the period runs over a major holiday, such as Christmas. There are strict rules on what the notice must include and how it must be publicised. It's really important to ensure that these rules are followed, otherwise the whole process would need to be repeated to conform with the legislative requirements. And what goes into a relevant representation once you've received the notice? A relevant representation should contain an outline of the principal submissions, which a person intends to make in respect of the application. It doesn't need to include the arguments in great detail, as people will have opportunities to comment on the application once the examination begins. But the relevant representation should contain enough information to enable the Secretary of State to understand which aspects of the application the person supports or objects to, and the reasons why. To the extent a representation contains material about compensation for compulsory acquisition of land or rights and interests over land, material about the merits of policy in a national policy statement, or material that is vexatious or frivolous, then it is not relevant and can be disregarded by the examining authority. That's the inspector or panel of inspectors appointed by the planning inspectorate to examine the application on behalf of the Secretary of State. Okay, so applicants and the examining authority will have a good grasp of what the issues will be in the examination once all these relevant representations have been received. Exactly. 
the next episode in this series will go into more detail about the examination process itself. So assuming each party who wished to make a relevant representation has done so within the required time frame, what happens next? The examining authority will make an initial assessment of the principal issues arising from its preliminary examination of the application documents, and in doing so, may also take account of the relevant representations. And how long does this process take? The initial assessment will normally be completed within 21 days from the day after the deadline for receipt of relevant representations. After this, the examining authority will hold a preliminary meeting and invite the applicant and each statutory party and interested party, i.e. those people who made relevant representations and any other parties that fall within the statutory definition of interested party, including certain parties with an interest in the land required for proposed development, to attend. In many cases, the preliminary meeting will be held within a period of six weeks to two months from receipt of relevant representations. But there's no strict timetable for this, so it could be earlier or later, depending on the requirements of a particular project. But how are these preliminary meetings being held at the moment during the global pandemic? They are still going ahead and being held live on video conference. The planning inspectorate is going to great lengths to ensure fairness and openness and to afford all parties the opportunity to have their say. It is now common for the preliminary meeting to be held over two parts. For example, the preliminary meeting for the Aquind Interconnector project, which HSF is advising on, was held on 18th of August and 8th of September, and the recordings of the sessions are available to download on the Planning Inspectorate's website. So what goes on at the preliminary meeting? The purpose of the meeting is to determine how the application should be examined. It is primarily procedural in nature, and attendees will be invited to make comments on the approach. Matters that may be discussed at a preliminary meeting include whether hearings need to be held, how the issues should be divided in hearings, invitees to the hearings, and the overall timetable for the process. The examining authority will make a decision at the preliminary meeting, or soon after, as to how the application will be examined in light of the discussions at the meeting. And what is the overall timeframe for this pre-examination stage of the process? The pre-examination timeframe is not set out in legislation and it differs from project to project, but a three-month period would be about average, I would say. Okay, so we've covered relevant representations, the preliminary meeting and the timeframes for the process. Is there anything else that happens in the pre-examination stage that we haven't already covered? The pre-examination stage will also involve the appointment of the examining authority and the examining authority's site visit. Obviously, each project is different and will have its own unique matters to deal with, but the applicant may also use this time to submit further information or request changes to the application. If, for example, it has identified matters raised in relevant representations that it can address and therefore minimise the issues to be resolved in the examination. So we've talked already about the role of the planning inspectorate during this pre-examination stage. What role will the applicant's own legal and consultants team play during this time? The legal team will have an important role in drafting the notices and certificates of compliance. Then the whole project team will be involved in reviewing the relevant representations and beginning to prepare for the preliminary meeting and examination. Thank you, Julia. That was a great overview of the pre-examination process. Thanks, Rebecca. 
I will be hosting the next episode in this series, which will cover the examination stage and will be joined by a fellow New Zealander, our colleague Lisa Bazzalo. Please note that whilst this podcast is intended to provide a general overview of the development consent regime, the law can change quickly and a general overview can't take account of the many different factors that will affect each individual case. So please seek independent legal or professional advice. And if you would like more information on anything mentioned in today's podcast or any of the other podcast episodes in this series, please contact a member of the Herbert Smith Freehills planning team using the contact details on the podcast homepage.